Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you see that pressure moment as an opportunity, if you befriend it, in other words, everything starts to change, including the reactions in your brain. That was Dr. Hank Weisinger on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you listen to this podcast, you probably know by now that we are partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. And there's a reason why. It's because Praxis really can help you transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based approaches. ACT, DBT, Compassion Focused Therapy. And we love Praxis so much especially because our very own Debbie Sorensen is going to be doing a workshop through Praxis. Tell us about it, Debbie. Yes, I'm doing a webinar on acceptance commitment therapy for burnout. This is for therapists who are working with clients who are burnt out. And of course, as therapists, we are also <laughs> occasionally may experience our own burnout. So hopefully it will be helpful for that too. It starts August 25th and it's on Wednesday afternoons, just for a few Wednesdays in a row. 
Uh, so you can check it out on the Praxis website and learn more. I hope you can join me if you're a therapist. It'd be great to have you there. And for all of the live online courses that Praxis offers, you can go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and get a discount code. This is Yael here to introduce an episode on the art of managing pressure. So I had the chance to talk with author Hank Weisinger, and we actually got to talk about two of his books. The first is Performing Under Pressure, The Science of Doing Your Best When It Matters Most, and then his most recent book that just came out, The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure, A Positive Approach to Pushing Your Child to Be Their Best Self. As we record this, we are well into the 2020, but really 2021, Tokyo Olympics, and we've born witness to how pressure can really impact athletes in pretty monumental ways. And what folks may or may not know is just how common it is for elite athletes to work with sports psychologists to perfect their performance under pressure. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch them. And I think for me, I get nervous sometimes watching the athletes as they're about to start their extremely difficult and complex moves. And I'm sitting there thinking, If I'm nervous and I'm feeling pressure right now, what must they be feeling with the eyes of the whole world on them? It was really interesting to watch having listened to this episode. And he talks about some of the, you know, thought trains, things that people say to themselves, athletes say to themselves when they're under that kind of pressure. And, you know, the the field of stress research is just pretty interesting in and of itself. It's actually a pretty controversial one because if you think about it, just even from a public lens, we talk about pressure in pretty different ways. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, too. I I work with a lot of people who are under a lot of stress and sometimes get into burnout and sometimes the chronic stress takes a toll. But I'm also thinking you don't want zero stress, right? If you had zero stress, you would be disengaged in everything. And stress is normal and healthy. It means you're doing important things. Um, But I do think at some point it can become overwhelming to people and they can start floundering a bit, bit. And I really think it's important for people to have a clear understanding of their emotional experience and take a close look at their own emotions. Sometimes you hear people say, name it to tame it, like just understand your emotions and what's going on. And this episode helped me take a look at the difference between stress, overwhelm, and pressure. What's the difference between those? Because to me, I wasn't really very aware of the distinction between them. And I think a lot of times when people are feeling intense emotions, they may not know the difference. And so to me, this is just a helpful new way to look at it. Yeah. And Hank does such a terrific job of explaining how pressure can be really problematic. And some stress researchers define what Hank calls pressure as the construct and I'll sort of air quote this, stress as threat. It's sort of like something imminently dangerous is going to happen to you. That's what he calls pressure. And the caveman days, perceiving stress as threat was really helpful. It saved us from predators, and we needed to have that kind of stress response that was very immediate. But these days, a lot of the time when we experience that sort of stress as threat, it's often not actually the case that our lives are in imminent danger. And so in that case, it's really helpful to reappraise the stress that you're experiencing, to name it in more constructive ways as a challenge. And in that way, we can set ourselves up to rise to the occasion more effectively. So there really is power in naming it, as you're saying, and dissecting and understanding what you're actually experiencing. Yeah. And another thing I thought was really helpful in this episode was toward the second half of the interview when he talks about some really helpful tips for how to manage pressure and what to do if you're in that situation when you're feeling that, you know, pressure, that stress as threat, which I think is a really good 
good to keep in mind. Yeah, I love the on the ground tips that he gives in his book and in the, in our conversation. And so we would be delighted to hear about any experiences that you've had putting some of these tips into practice and how they've helped or, or what's helped you the most. So please reach out to us if you listen and, and try some of these things out. I am here today with Hank Weisinger, who is a psychologist specializing in the field of pressure management. He has consulted with and developed programs for dozens of Fortune 500 companies and government agencies and has taught at a variety of leading business schools. Hank is also the author of several best-selling books, including The Power of Positive Criticism and Performing Under Pressure. His latest book is also about pressure, but focuses more on pressure in the parenting sphere and offers a guide for how parents can move away from harmful pressure and into healthy pressure. Welcome, Hank. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I wanted to start with a more general conversation about pressure. What is it? How it interferes with our performance and then how to manage it. And then maybe as we move on in the conversation, get a little narrower in talking about your most recent book and and talking about how some of your work Mm -hmm. applies in the parenting domain. Mm -hmm. So to that end, I wanted to start with with talking a little bit about your book, Performing Under Pressure. And your book begins in a pretty interesting place, which is in a marriage laboratory, Mm -hmm. in John Gottman's laboratory. One of the interesting things we found in terms of relationships is that how a couple handles uh, pressure in the context of the conversations they have with each other in their own personal lives uh, is a great predictor. In fact, one of the best predictors for whether the relationship is going to uh, last for a long time in a happy in a happy way, so that means when young people start to meet, uh, one of the things that they might be thinking in the back of their mind is how well does this person handle pressure? Which unfortunately, many times you do not know until you have been with the person for a uh, you know for a while so we wanted to say it's it's not only about performing under pressure in the work environment you know giving a presentation making a sales call but also it impacts our relationships to the point that you can either enhance a marriage a relationship or it can break it Right. You talk about in in many of your books, there's this evolutionary function that our response to pressure has, which is to get through whatever the the dangerous, threatening, difficult situation is. And in those situations, our attention narrows. And so it's very hard to make space for somebody else's experience. And one of the consequences of this is that many people confuse, even academics, pressure and stress. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. I know you get this all the time, but can you talk a little bit about how you distinguish between pressure and stress? There are two different psychological constructs. And one of the differences is when you experience pressure under what kind of situation and when you experience stress. For example, you will experience pressure when you are in a situation and the outcome is dependent on your performance and it's really important now the key here is the outcome is an unknown there's uncertainty see if if you were taking a test and you knew that you were guaranteed you were going to get 100 there's no pressure if you're watching a sporting event and your home team is up by 
in basketball, say, uh, 30 points and there's 10 seconds left, there is no pressure. It is only when it's a tie score and there's three seconds left and the outcome is uncertain that you are actually sitting on the edge of your seat. So we experience pressure in a situation when when the outcome is dependent on our performance, like taking a test, like taking the SATs. Uh, that's a pressure situation. People will now. There are many definitions of stress, as you know. Uh, I operate from the definition that people will experience stress when they feel overwhelmed by the demands of their environment. In other words, if it's a Saturday morning and you have to go to the beauty parlor, then you have to drive your kids somewhere, then you have to go shopping, then you have to go to the cleaners, then you have to make dinner for your friends that are coming over, you will start to feel some stress because there are many, many demands upon you. Now, there are multiple ways. A second Wait, so, so one is when you experience it. You experience pressure when you got to perform. You experience stress when you tend to feel overwhelmed in the situation. And I like that definition better because some people will say, well, the event is stressful, you know, like, like death of a spouse. I remember I had a patient once, oh, doctor, my life is over. My husband, Charlie, we were married for 40 years. Uh, he was my best friend, my lover, my confidant. We had three wonderful kids. My life will never be the same. And as you would imagine, she'd be depressed for six months or longer. Yet five minutes later, another lady comes in, doctor, I got great news. My husband died. I can start to live. Same event, but a different interpretation of it. So the problem of when people think or define stress as like the event, like moving a, a speech, is that people react differently to the event. It's all, as you know, that mediating variable of how we interpret it. So in stress, the, you, have a resp- you have multiple responses. If, if you go through the day that I described to you, you know what? Maybe you order the food to be delivered. So you cut that out. Maybe you delegate some of the responsibilities. Maybe you blow some off. You can laugh about it. You can do many things. You can take a 15-minute cat nap. With pressure, there is only one response, and that is the effective response for the situation. So it's important for a pilot to be relaxed, but he still has to land the plane. The quarterback can tell a joke in the huddle and calm everybody but he still has to throw that touchdown pass. So with stress differences, you have multiple ways of responding. And remember, the goal of stress management is reduction, reducing it. The goal of pressure management is to be able to perform effectively. And also the feelings that you associate when you are under pressure is another cue. I would tell people if they are feeling overwhelmed, tired, exhausted, burned out, that's stress. The emotions that tend to be associated with a pressure situation are anxiety, fear, and many times embarrassment after the fact if the person does not perform correctly. And what I've noticed what happens is people take that stressful situation and they act as though it is pressure, meaning they have to perform or what? You, you mean if you get, what happens if you don't get to the uh, cleaners? 
you probably have 20 other things minimum in your closet that you can still wear. It is not a do or die situation. And when people make every stressful situation a do or die situation, they are using valuable psychological resources that could be used more effectively. And their life is on in havoc because they're on high alert 24-7. And I will tell you, difference of West Coast and East Coast, the the or I should say in terms of age, when I was in my uh, 30s and 40s, I did that. I confused stress with pressure. And I was always on on edge. You know, every talk was a do or die, you know, moment. Everything I did. And that's why I felt so much pressure. And once I started to give that up and was able to distinguish, I'd become a lot more content. I want to ask you to talk a little bit about some of the pressure traps. What a pressure trap means is that we have conventional ways of how we think that we are going to motivate a person. But ironically, it actually increases the amount of pressure and the person will do worse. And, And let me reiterate the point that nobody does better under pressure. The idea of rising to the occasion is a myth. The edge, and I used to think that was the edge, you know, because I'm a big sports fan. You know, the guy's a clutch player and can rise to the occasion. What I learned is that the edge is not doing worse under pressure, not not best. Nobody is rising to the occasion. I want to actually interrupt and, and ask you a, a more pointed question. So what do you think about the Yerkes-Dodson curve? So for those of you who have taken Psych 101, there's this arousal performance bell-shaped curve. And the suggestion is that at very low levels of stress or pressure or arousal, we don't perform as well. And at very, very high levels, we also don't perform as well. But there's this middle section that our performance is optimized, that a little bit of pressure, a little bit of arousal actually helps us perform better. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, the what, you're, what that curve is really saying is the language that I would put it in is that there's a level where when you're regulating your emotions and you're regulating arousal, uh, it, that will help you perform more effectively. And, and, and a big, another difference between stress and pressure is stress sometimes can be motivational. And I'll give an example. Like, let's say I go into my kid's bedroom and he's, and I want him to be more productive. Okay. I can do that by increasing the amount of stress, i.e. by putting more demands upon him. So his arousal will come up and they'll start to be more productive. However, if I put too many demands and get that and get him to arouse, that's where the curve starts to go down. So arousal can be used, and, and I want to touch on what we call competitive arousal, which is a function of, of being under pressure, is that arousal can be used, but it has to be regulated either individually by the person or whether it's a parent or it's a manager. If you give person too many demands, too many things to do, uh, they will do worse. And, and a good way of thinking of that for the listener to really bring it down is, I always say, who would you rather be married to, stress or pressure? Because if you're married to stress, your life is do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And after you've done all that, do this. Now, there's many ways of doing that. 
the partner who is feeling all those demands could say, do it yourself, blow it off, laugh about it. I'll do it when I'm ready and so on. If you're married to pressure, you're going to hear the same thing. But the tagline is, you better not fail. Pressure is about getting it done, not about reducing the amount that you are under. And one of the great quotes, because you talked about the importance of framing it, that it's like elite athletes, they don't even think of it as pressure. Derek Jeter, um, the Yankees, said that every time he goes up, what's going through his mind is, this is fun. This is what I wanted to do since I have been a kid. He is not seeing it as a threatening as a threatening situation. When I used to start teaching at UCLA in the business school, I was so nervous the first time because what's going through my mind? I have to perform. Uh, otherwise, they'll never use me again. My career will be over. All these what I call pressure cognitive distortions. Once I realized and changed my perception, this is great. I love speaking and educating these people. This is a chance to promote myself. Then the pressure was, it went away completely. So people have, if you see that pressure moment as an opportunity, if you befriend it, in other words, everything starts to change, including the reactions in your, in your brain. Yeah, it reminds me of the work out of Aaliyah Crumb's lab, which is really cool. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but she sort of sets up these instructional videos that kind of inculcate people into different mindsets. So stress as debilitating is one set, is one condition. And the second condition is stress as enhancing. And when people are encouraged to drop into these different kinds of mindsets, they find that performance really changes. And also cardiovascular response really changes. They actually, they put people through the Trier social stress test where people do mental arithmetic in front of critical evaluators. Evaluators are frowning and crossing their arms in disapproval. And what they find is that when they have people uh, watch these videos that suggest that stress can be enhancing, that they see it as an opportunity. They see it as a challenge and not as a threat. And I guess to me, that's how I read what pressure in your definition is, is that it's like stress as threat, that if I don't succeed here, it's a do or die moment. And what the reframing is, is to more move the stressful experience into one that can be seen as a challenge. Correct. And you have to remember in early time, stress and pressure were the same because every moment was a do. Survival was a, a hour to hour event, you know, finding water, finding food. And once agriculture started and food became more prevalent, well, that becomes a stressor that is now gone and there's no more pressure finding food. So they started out the same, but then they, then they sort of split. And that's why there are different psychological constructs. And back to that pressure traps, so I wanted to give you an example. So one of the ways, one of the ways we typically try to motivate people at work parents do is incentives. So now you're the you're the student and I'm the parent. So I say, okay, if you get an A on this test tomorrow, I'm getting you a new iPhone. So you better study. So now I walk out and you're thinking, well, I don't know if I'm going to get an A, but I really want that iPhone. How can I increase the chances that I will get an A? Ooh, I'll make a little crib sheet. So the incentive is now backfiring because the kid wants that iPhone. 
And this is why cheating many times happens. Just like on Wall Street, people will cheat because of the incentives of making another, uh, you know, $5 million, $6 million. So that's one. So we think that we're motivating, but we're really sabotaging the person. Before you go on to the next one, I just want to summarize that point because I think in that in that really great example, what the parent is unwittingly doing is creating a do or die situation right. need to be a do or die situation and it's not the intention but that's sort of the the, the consequence exactly and the, and the sad thing that i learned is many times that a is much more important to the parent than it is to the kid and another one is we think social support is is going to help the person so the parent who says, okay, you got your school play and we'll be sitting right in the third row and so on and uh, make us proud. They think they're being supportive, but they're really making the kid do worse because the the performer will start to think of, uh-oh, my parents are watching me and they become preoccupied with how their parents are judging them. I would tell parents that when your kid's doing an event that you sit in the, the furthest back, not up front. You, want, you do not want to be distracting to them. Some people will say, well, social support. Now, this might be a way of how you can use pressure to work for you. It's like when I say to my friends, I'm writing, I need to have this book outline done in three weeks. So I'm, I'm going on record. So now I've socially committed to that. And I taught my friends, every time I call you, the first thing you say to me is, have you written 15 pages today? And if I say no, I want you to say, then get back to it. And you can, I will only talk to you when you've written that 15 pages. I've taught my friends to pressure me into getting the work done. But even in that sort of increasing pressure, it's not do or die. It's, it's, and it's not outcome focused. It's process focused, like sit down yeah. and do the work. One of the things that I've learned over the years is that people like me are not in do or die situations. Mm. Giving, yeah. giving a presentation to a YPO, Young President's Organization, is not a do or die situation. I see people doing these TED Talks and they talk about how nervous they are. And that I'll tell you why. That's because they're, they're giving a performance. See, when you, when, you, when you have the mindset, and I will share with you the mindset I discovered reduces pressure, is once you set it up as a performance, of course you're under pressure because now you're being evaluated. So my mindset was I'm educating people. If anybody's going to do the evaluation, it's me evaluating you because mm. I know this. I know this stuff. So those would be so the incentive and the social support are really things that we commonly do because we think we're helping the person. But in reality, many times it makes the situation worse for the person. Right. Your mindset is one that reconnects to the value of why you're doing something. And again, not the outcome, but more like the process of educating people who might benefit from this information. Mm -hmm. And and by focusing on that rather than on how people might be evaluating you, it reduces the pressure that you experience and enhances the likelihood of you performing better. Over the years, I, I started seeing what is the mindset to have that allows you to perform closest to your capabilities. We've already talked about some. One is befriend the moment rather than seeing as as threatening. 
Two, very importantly, is to realize multiple opportunities. There, you miss the bus, there's another one. So because this leads into a common pressure distortion, chance of a lifetime thinking, when a person says, this is the only chance I'm ever going to have. So the agent who says, listen, Spielberg's in the audience listening, watching you, this is the only chance you're ever going to get is making the situation worse rather than the agent who says, don't worry about it. There'll be multiple opportunities. So always think, I've taught my kids, there's always another opportunity and that helps. And a third thing to do, which people have trouble with, is shrink the importance of the event. The more important you make something, the more pressure you experience. See, it goes against conventional wisdom to say to your kids, the SATs are not a big deal. And people will say, that's unrealistic to say that. But I say it's unrealistic to think it's it's the most important event of your life. See, we over-exaggerate. So psychologically, you know, as a clinician, you can appreciate this. You have to get the person to under-exaggerate. It's like taking something the other way to absurdity, where you make it so ridiculous puts it in perspective. So when people say it's the most important, I want them to minimize it. I also like Steve Nash, famous basketball player, said every time he would shoot a foul shot, he'd bounce the ball three times and he's saying to himself, I've done this 10,000 times. So it's very important when people go into a situation, be it a presentation, um, be it a conversation, performing a specific task, to flash back in in just right in the moment, all the successes that they have had in the, in the past. And that is very important. And also the last thing is to people to remember, this is so important for parents, is to recognize, see, uh, so many people in the work world, their whole identity is based on their job. Like the financial advisor who only thinks he's a good person or she's a good person if they're a million-dollar producer. It's very important to know and to remember to reaffirm your self-worth and to recognize that you are a worthy and valuable person regardless of the outcome. If you merge too much, if you fail at work, you're a failure in life. If you're successful at work, you're successful in life. You and I have both met many successful people that are not successful in their personal, you know, in their personal relationships. So those are some of the mental actions that I would want people to uh, follow. Yeah. And I actually talked about this a little bit with Sion Bylock in my episode on choke, but I, I think it would be worth revisiting. Why are these solutions so helpful and, and why don't we perform at our best when we're under pressure? Well, there are many theories. And one of the things, one of the things that I've noticed in psychology in the last 15 years, 20 years, it has moved into a very uh, biological basis. And, and you, you have to, that if I'm a psychiatrist or a neurologist and I'm going to study emotion, I'm going to study the brain. If I'm an evolutionary psychologist and I'm studying emotion, I am studying the face because the face is the premier signaler of emotions. To me, it is irrelevant about the chemical changes in the brain and so on, because they are all triggered by how you appraise an event. 
Now, this is a philosopher said a thousand years ago, man is not troubled by events, but rather what he or she tells himself those events mean. I.e. Albert Ellis, a thousand years later, his ABC principle. A is the event, C is the consequence, and the, the event does not cause the consequence. So, like when you had uh, Sienna, she is much more knowledgeable about the brain than I am. Well, I, but I think that a lot of what you talk about in your book is similar in terms of like when we appraise something as being a pressure do or die situation, our scratch pad, our working memory gets used up, leaving less available resources for some of the cognitive heavy load tasks that we might need to engage. For example, if we're having a thoughtful conversation with somebody who's interviewing us. Taking a, a math test and she's sitting down and she's taking it. She has an hour to do the test like the rest of the class. And all of a sudden her mind wanders to the fight that she heard her parents having before she went to school. And she, and they're talking about divorce so now she starts to think about the divorce and she starts to get anxious about the divorce. It has nothing to do with the test. Pretty soon time is over and so on. Now, some people will say, well, what was going on? Okay. So she, those, those worry thoughts came on to her uh, working memory iPad and it bumped off the other information. I like to explain it as she's anxious about something else and the anxiety interfered. To help that person, I don't have to even mention the brain. And and that's why this is, again, we, we had talked about this once before, is that when I was in graduate school, it used to be the best classes were theories of personality and theories of psychotherapy and so on. And now it's all this neuro, neuropsych stuff. I just read a study by a young gun, as I would call him, as I would refer to you, uh, Jeremy Rifkin, I think his name was, University of Rochester. And he did this. Jeremy Jameson. Jerry Jameson. And he did this study where, you know, it's a test. And if you tell the students, big decisions are going to be based on it. And he did MRIs uh, versus it's an opportunity for the teachers to know you better. Uh, they always did better with that second definition. So he concludes how you think about the situation decides how your brain reacts and your reaction. Well, I knew that. I was taught that 50 years ago. and But it's because he did an MRI that, oh, yeah, this is a new thing. It's like, it's like do you need any more research to say that humor is important? I mean, I'm not a brain researcher by any stretch, but I do, I do think it's really so affirming to understand that like what we see from a behavioral perspective matches up to what we see at a neurological perspective. And it just kind of bolsters this, the power in how we can respond and help people. Um, so I don't know, you know, I actually, I'm a huge fan of Jeremy Jameson's work and he's not a clinical psychologist, but a lot of the interventions that he does are more, you know, intervening at the appraisal level, not at the, you know, not medicating people, for example. So you had been talking about a number of the solutions to pressure traps. You already mentioned downsizing importance, affirming your self-worth, recalling yourself at your best. I wanted to also ask you to talk a little bit about ranking versus excellence mindset. And I thought that was kind of a cool way to reframe uh, how you think about your performance. There's two types of pressure that people experience. One is in the moment when you have to perform a particular task. Now, as I look at my friends, 
None of my friends who are lawyers, for example, feel pressure when they walk into a courtroom or have to give a deliberation. Their pressure is, how much is my daughter's wedding going to cost? Mm. How much longer do I have to put my son through uh, medical school or my daughter through school and pay for the apartment and whatever? And these are daily feelings, like carrying a, a boulder on your shoulder and so on. Now, one of the ways that I find that many people who experience pressure, the feeling of pressure, like they, they're burdened every single day, is because of their mindset, which is what we'll call a ranking mindset, which means that you compare yourself to others versus a mindset of excellence where you are just focused on doing your best. The problem of having a ranking mindset is when do you stop? You're, you're never, there's always somebody better. I told my kids at a very early age, there's somebody, there's going to be somebody prettier, smarter, richer, yada, yada, yada. Don't compare. And were they like, dad, <laughs> you're supposed to think I'm the best. <laughs> well, I do think that, but there might be other people that you find are better and so on. And it is a terrible way to live your life when you are always basing your own self-worth on what other people do. You know, a good friend, and I used to do that in terms of, you know, books, this person's book is selling more and so on, drive me nuts. And one of my friends who was 10 years older at the time said to me, somebody else's success doesn't take away from your success. Oh, I love that as a mantra. And now I'm happy for other people's, you know, successes. It's not, it's not competitive. And that's what a ranking mindset does. So somebody says, well, I have to be the best golfer. Really? You're going to be better than Tiger Wood was? I said, forget it. Just enjoy the sport. I found that when you are always comparing yourself to others, you're always feeling pressure because you're always competing. It's more than keeping up with the Joneses. It's beating the Joneses. Whereas a mindset of excellence, you're just focusing on doing your best. I would tell every parent and every manager almost that the best thing to say is just do your best. If you do your best, which is almost always good enough, good things will happen. Your work will be rewarded. If you believe that hard work pays off, which is a positive psychology concept, that the world is is just, you will be rewarded. Don't worry. My father always used to say, don't worry about the other guy. You can't control a student. I can't control how much you study. If you want to study 15 hours a day, well, that's up to you. I'm not going to compare myself to you because I have no interest in studying 15 hours you know, a day. So that's what that means between those two different mindsets. Comparing yourself to others, it's like being on a treadmill. You're just going on, but you're going nowhere fast. And I would tell yeah. people, and I never used to do this because I thought it was too hokey. But what, since I have, it really makes a difference that when you're feeling a lot of pressure or feeling you've been overwhelmed, five minutes of gratitude. I've taught my daughter every time she starts complaining about something, feeling sorry for herself, think of all the things that you have going for you. 
So I would right. sit back in a chair and I'd say, I got great friends, great kids. I got a new book coming out, a class. I got a great partner. And all of a sudden, I'm feeling good. So that's a very important thing for a person. You know, it's the, it's the idea of that coat of armor, confidence, optimism, tenacity, enthusiasm. And here we're talking about optimism is that if, if people do not understand the benefits of optimism unless they've read the research because it sounds so ridiculous. When you are optimistic, everything becomes easier and you make your life much more pleasant. It's like optimists have better health because they, because they believe that if they go to their doctor, it makes a difference. The pessimist doesn't go because they think it doesn't matter. Not going to do anything. So they don't keep their medical appointments. Optimists who have surgery recover faster than pessimists. Teams that are measured for optimism do better because they try harder, because they believe if we try harder, it'll, it'll pay off. So you, people should ask, do they wake up on the sunny side of the bed? And they should start thinking, how can they put themselves in an optimistic mood for the day? Yeah, I love that. Um, it's actually a nice segue into diving a little deeper into the parenting book. And one question that is a pretty specific question that I just wanted to ask is, is coming back to your suggestion to focus on, are you doing your best? The fear that a lot of parents have is that if they say to their kid, like, was that your best? And the kid says, yes, it might really have been a lazy effort. And so what do we as parents do? Well, I, I want to tell you a story and then I will come back. I'll give you some strategies in a sec. So my son says to me, dad, this was, he was maybe in, um, seventh or eighth grade and he did a project on tornadoes on a big you know uh, white piece of cardboard and so on so he says to me dad if you were my teacher what would you give me now i'm thinking sweet because when my daughter would say that if i said a b how do i get a b plus if i said an a minus how do i get an a if i said a c how do i get a c plus well i figure you know it's going to have the same thing so i walk around it and i study it and i say danny be very honest with you if I was your teacher, I would give you a B minus. So he pauses for a second. He says, I can live with that. I'll take it. <laughs> and I did not know what to say. Now, two weeks later, same situation. And Im imagine now that I'm telling this story, you know, in a seminar. And I, and I would say, okay, so your kid comes up and they say, what would you give me? And... If you say, um, whatever you say, you know in advance, he's going to say, I can live with that. So one person would say, I would say you can do better. And then I'd role play it. Dad, you always think I can do better. Whatever I do, it's never, it's never good enough. And some other parent would say something and so on. So I realized they were falling into the trap that I was. And I said, what do you want from your kids? And he's, and it would take them a few seconds, and then somebody would finally say, you want them to do your, their best. I said, right. So all I said to my son was, I said, well, Danny, I said, is this your best? Because if this is your best, you're finished. I said, if it's not your best, only show it to me when it's your best. And own, this was the mind, only you know if this is your best. And he thought about it, and he said, it's not my best. And I said, well, then don't show it to me. I only want to see when it's your best. Now, the irony now is that when he asked me to edit something, if I really do it quickly and so on, because I really don't want to, 
he'll say to me, you can do better. This isn't good enough. (laughs) We've had a number of guests who want to offer you, our listeners, discounted access to some of their fantastic programs. So if you want to learn powerful practices for happiness, calm, and well-being, we have several offerings from Rick Hansen. If you want app-based behavior change, you can check out Judd Brewer's apps for anxiety, eating well, and smoking cessation. Or you can learn how to be a calmer parent with Mindful Mama mentor Hunter Clark Fields. So go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and visit our offers page, where you will find access to free courses and discount promo codes. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider making a values-based donation on Patreon. Even a small contribution helps us with some of our expenses. You could think of it as taking a co-host out for a cup of coffee. And you can link to Patreon on our website or just search for us on patreon.com. It gets into this, this question of what is healthy pressure versus harmful pressure and your book, The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure, that is coming out in July, you provide parents with like a lot of different strategies to to try out, right? That not every kid is going to need the same thing. Not every parent-child is, is the same. Not every kid is capable of doing the same thing. But what I think is actually quite interesting is that you actually suggest there is a healthy kind of pressure. There's a message right now in in the ether that we shouldn't pressure our kids. We should, you know, really not be pressure parents at all. And so what what is your argument for why it's wrong to say that we simply shouldn't apply any pressure to our kids? Well, A, it's inherent in every parent-child relationship because of its evolutionary utility, which is to guide the child into the life path that will help him succeed from an evolutionary uh, perspective, perpetuate the parents, the parents' genes. Now, you have to remember that pressure in its physical form is a force. And that's how I want parents to think of, of psychological pressure. The physical world was here before the psychological world. So we have that pressure is really no more than a force. And it is up to the parent now to harness that force through different modalities, which I will label to convert just like physical pressure you have gas pressure you have water pressure there's all different types of pressure and it's the same thing with psychological pressure there is singular pressure there is relationship pressure there is peer pressure there is parental pressure there is social pressure all of these have a different function and when a parent is able to use that force in a healthy way, then the student or the child teen experiences that force, not as I have to, not as you stepping on them with high heels, you know, we're on their foot and, you know, pressing, pressing down, but rather the other way, lifting them up. They will experience it as guidance, support, inspiration, and wisdom. And that is the transformation, and then it becomes healthy pressure. Very sadly, I met a kid in my building the other day. He graduated from Stanford, you know, 6'4", good-looking guys from Greenwich, Connecticut. He told me that his father put a tremendous amount of pressure on him to succeed. He said he understood why, but the consequence, he doesn't speak to his father anymore. That is mm-hmm. really sad. And remember, pressure is defined from the kid's point of view. 
So a parent can say, I don't pressure my kids, but if the kid says you do, then they are a pressure parent. It's like parental warmth. If you're, you can think you're the warmest mother or father in the world, but if your kid experiences you the opposite, then that's what you, that's what you are. And what I have found in the parenting world is most parents will tend to attribute situations of blame to their, to their kids. He's a difficult child, but nobody ever thinks I'm a difficult parent. When a parent says, make me proud of you, I would say, how would you like it if your kid came home and said, dad, I got to talk to him. I said, you were dropping me off in school in a Volvo. Every other kid gets dropped off in a Mercedes or a BMW. Can't you work harder and make, get a, get a better car? Make, make me proud of you, dad. So that becomes a very different scenario. So the, the three ways that I have found that parents exert pressure is through communication, involvement, and their acceptance or rejection of the child. Um, I can have very high expectations of you, and that, and they might be unrealistic. You know, you're going to be first in your class or first on the soccer team and whatever. And that's how parental pressure is defined. When the child or teen experiences expectations, demands upon them that they feel are impossible to meet. So the, the parent now has many times unrealistic expectations. It's very hard for parents to accept the fact that your kid's not going to an Ivy League school. For them, that's the unrealistic expectation. Not everybody can go. So, you know, I asked parents in a room one time, how many kids, how many of you think your kid's going to an Ivy League school? Almost every parent raised their hand. Somebody's being unrealistic because it's not going to happen. So when you think of it, when you say to, to transform it, it's to transform it so they feel that force is supporting them and pushing them in an uplifting way rather than pushing them in a downward way and suppressing their interest and their feelings. Pressure parents, for example, define success in very narrow ways, like getting into Harvard or getting into you know, Yale or, or something. Every parent says, you can be whatever you want and I will support you. Oh, yeah, the kid says, I want to be a forest ranger. Let's see how supportive the parents are when the kid says that. Uh, you can marry anybody, but I'm not paying for the wedding unless I uh, like the girl. Oh, I'll help you buy a house, but it has to be the house that um, I approve of. So that becomes a big difference. And, and, I met, and I found the majority of parents are like that, not the minority, the majority. It's a global pandemic. Right. And I, I think it is. And I, I want to talk about how to change that. But I, I do want to just emphasize this point. And I think it's a good one. And it's threaded throughout your book, you and your co-author, Chris Thurber, right? That your approach isn't about getting our kids to change. It's about getting parents right. to change. Yes. In a way, it can come across as like, you know, now we're blaming the parents again, you know, and and I don't think that's what it's about. It's about finding a more effective mindset. We're not doing anything wrong other than loving our kids and doing the best we can with what we know, but there's some really helpful science that can guide us in doing a better, more effective job. And the second thing is it's kind of nice that it's in our wheelhouse, right? We can't really get other people to change. I can't get my 11-year-old to eat his dinner, but what I can do is work on myself. That's in my power to do. One of the things that has been a big 
question ever since um, I think her name was Amy Chan who did that tiger parenting. Amy Chua, yeah. yeah. Okay, so she got people into thinking of the the how much pressure and put more pressure on. What Chris and I discovered is that's the wrong question. It's not how much or how little. It's how you apply pressure. There is nothing wrong. You're applying pressure anyway. So you might as well do it in a way that is going to help your child. Uh, the way that a parent asks questions, for example. Some parents will ask questions like it's an interrogation. That's what they're, you know, what did you do, and so on. Other parents, what did you get on the test? What did you do today? They want facts. Whereas other parents will use questions to help the child articulate their interests and express their feelings. So that became a big, a big difference that I would say every parent, the next time you ask your son or daughter a question, think about how you are phrasing it. And, and many times you're looking for a specific response. You want them to say a certain thing by the way the question is is structured. You're really not using the question to discover what they are all about. Criticism is another difference. Parents will use criticism for floor finding, maybe inadvertently, but that's how it comes across. They'll focus on what the, what the kid did wrong. Verse is support parents who use criticism to instruct and to guide. The, the pressure parent who is a sports father might say, I can't believe you blew that brown ball that was hit to you. You lost the game. Whereas the other parent will say, hey, next time there's a ground ball hit to you, just bend down and block it. And next time becomes an important phrase to say to kids, because next time implies you're going to get another opportunity. And when a person realizes that they're going to get a next opportunity, they feel less pressure. So in involvement, you know, the rule that we found is that if it's the right amount of involvement, your kids will say you are supportive. If it's too much involvement, you are intrusive. And one of the things that pressure parents do is they do not respect the boundaries of their kids. They're, they will just barge into the room. They'll actually pick up their phone and say, who are you texting? And they will, they will look at it. Now, we know there is a psychological theory called psychological reactance where when you get too close in a person's face, they automatically become defensive and they push back. Parents have to remember that, that there are boundaries, just like they want their kids to knock on the door when they come into the parents' bedroom. Parents need to knock on their kids' door. They need to respect the boundaries. And what the smart parents do, or I should say the supportive parents do, is they widen the boundaries as the child becomes more and more responsible. It's like setting limits that once the person who the kid has a curfew and they say, okay, I, I've met my curfew for a year. I think I'm ready now instead of 10 o'clock to come home 11 o'clock. There's no reason. Okay. You've proved it versus the kid who is never listening to curfew. That's the kid where the parents would want to say, well, you haven't earned it yet. And you know, and you haven't shown that you respect, you know, our limits. Yeah. So we're 
We're totally running over time, but I did want to ask you for your thoughts on this one question. One thing I think that we know about just generally healthy parenting, and I think this applies to healthy pressure, is that healthy parenting involves high respect, high standards, like high expectations for that child, Mm -hmm. and high warmth. The high expectations and high respect are a little bit more obvious about how we manifest that. The high warmth is a little bit harder, but I think it's the most important. And you spend a lot of time in your book talking about warmth, and and this is critically important. So I wonder if you have some tips for upping parental warmth. One of the ways that parents can do that is to show their kids, ask them to do things with them as a way of being very accepting, to be able to give a very clear message that how you do in school has nothing to do with me loving you. A great example is in the film Searching for Bobby Fischer. Have you ever seen it? We've watched that movie many times. (laughs) So there is a scene, for those who haven't seen it, where this 11-year-old kid, he loses in a chess match to somebody he easily should have beaten. And the next scene is they're outside and it's raining. And the father is saying, how could you lose to this guy? And he's, he's basically really angry and so on. And all of a sudden, the kid says, his name is Josh. He says, Dad, why are you standing so far away from me? And it was like punching the father in the face. He realized what he was doing. So what does he do? He says, come here. And he gives him a big hug. And he says, it's okay. You, you made an important point about high standards. We are not asking people to have low standards. It's important to have high standards. And it's important maybe to have high expectations. And it's okay if those expectations are unrealistic if you are a warm parent. Because then, if the child doesn't meet those expectations, you're still warm and accepting. It's the parents who are on the other side of the continuum, setting up conditional love that in order for me to be warm and love to you, you have to be a success. That is a nightmare, and that will impact that child for the rest of his or her life. So asking, touching, tech, you know, I am amazed at how many parents, when they drop their kids off, whether it's at boarding school or college, especially, you know, father to son, they shake his hand. It's like, okay, have a good submit, and they shake hands. What about the hug? What about the kiss? So people can up their warmth by using more tactile communication, whether that is a arm, a pat on the back, uh, an arm around the shoulder after a mini type of uh, setback. That becomes a good way. And asking your child to do things with you that are non-performance oriented, watching TV together. I wrote an article for TV Guide, tutored by television, using TV to raise the emotional intelligence of your kids. So watching a show on TV together that the kid likes, not that you like, showing your reaction, showing your own feelings is a great way to show um, warmth to your child. Because too many, especially young boys, feel that they have to bottle things up. Letting your kid know any type of problem, come to me. Yeah. It's like you you create a system where they can come close to you. That's right. And that will set the stage for more warmth to happen. Just getting back to this idea of like, there's many pathways to warmth. It can be physical. It can be shared interests. It can be 
communication. It can be just relaxing with a hobby together or watching TV together. And just letting and accept it, not setting up that conditional type of, of, of thing. I mean, if you really want to, your kid, for example, if they're applying to college and, and they, you wanted them to get into a school and they didn't and it was their first choice and they get disappointed, I tell parents it's important to hide your own disappointment. Be empathic yeah. to them and, and hide your own because then the kid feels that they're disappointing the parents. And when a child feels, or a teen especially, feels they are disappointing their parents, many of them will try to cover that up by hiding things because they don't want their parents to know. Not because they're bad kids, but because they will feel that I will lose the love of my parents. And that's why a lot of kids do things, whether it's changing grades on their report card, you know, or cheating. They are afraid that they will lose the love of their parents. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Hank. I, I mean, your your books are full of tons more tips that you can put into action starting today. So you can find out more by picking up The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure, a positive approach to pushing your child to be their best self. And, and, and one of the yeah. things I want your listeners to know for, for their attention is we are having a contest, an essay contest. First reward is $2,500 for a teen who writes the best essay. That The essay is entitled Parental Pressure, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. The way to enroll, it, the only enrollment is you have to have a, get a copy of the book and have the Amazon receipt certified on the application. But I'll let you know, and we're expecting a lot of responses. <laughs> no, There'll be, be a lot of pressure to read them. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're putting on the pressure through incentives, Hank. <laughs> well, I will know if they wrote it themselves, believe me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so folks can also access other offerings through your website, hankweisingerphd.com. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. It's great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.